your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. So you may have noticed that we've missed a couple episodes of the Debt Dialogues over the last few weeks, and uh, my excuse is that I've been on the road speaking about the effect that the welfare state will have on young people. Talk's called End the Debt Draft, and that's actually what you're about to hear on this recording. I've spoken everywhere from New York to Chicago to D.C. to San Francisco, and I'm actually flying out tomorrow to Florida to give a similar talk. And the fact is that I am not very good at doing any productive work on the road, and so it's going to be a few more weeks, I think, until we can get another episode to you, but we'll get back to our regular schedule pretty soon, listening public. So enjoy, and I'll see you in a few weeks. Before we get started, just a few things. First, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave Goldberg. I'm the donor services guy here at the institute. And if you are a donor, thank you very much. If you are not and you're interested in supporting events like this, feel free to speak to me or any of our other staff members. Uh, I've got my business card on the table over there along with some of our other literature. If you're new to the Ayn Rand Institute, uh, there's some information over there for you. And... Uh, just a reminder that uh, these Irvine events are every month through June, and they're going to be on the third Wednesday of each month. And we think we've uh, definitely got that schedule locked in. Don's book, Roosevelt Care, <coughs> will be selling that right after the talk, and Don will be uh, sticking around to sign some copies for you. So uh, if you're interested in that, please take advantage. So our speaker tonight is Don Watkins. He's a fellow here at the Ayn Rand Institute. Don is co-author with Dr. Yvonne Brooke of the national bestseller, Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. His newest book is Roosevelt Care. And Don is one of today's most vocal opponents of the welfare state. And in addition to his writings, he does a weekly podcast on the called The Debt Dialogue, and if you haven't uh, seen it or heard it yet, you can find it on the blog section of our website. So Don's talk tonight is End the Debt Draft, How the Welfare State is Exploiting Millennials. So please welcome Don Watkins. All right, so uh, any students here? People who are one-time students, people who know that there have been at various times about history students, um, and that any of you have student loan debt or have had student loan debt, yeah. So I have a proposal for you guys, and that's let's add four hundred thousand dollars to your bill. Only instead of getting something for it like an education, we're just going to give all that money to other people. Any takers? Oh, you guys are cold. I expected a little bit of compassion here. So 
Where did that number come from? Well, that's basically roughly what each of us uh, who are, say, below the age of 35 are going to be responsible for in the years ahead. As our portion of this number. Oh, I should have made it smaller. We're running out of board. I'm not great at math, but that's okay. Neither's the government. So, $205 trillion. That's the projected gap between how much the government expects to be spending in the future and how much it expects to actually be able to collect in tax revenue. And people quibble about the number, but no, the scale is something that is basically agreed upon. Now, what's driving that? What's driving this kind of unprecedented explosion in debt? Any brave souls? No compassion, no braveness. That's okay. We'll work through it. So the main drivers of these are old-age welfare state programs, namely Social Security and Medicare. The problem is pretty simple, which is right now there's about three workers for every retiree. And as the baby boomer generation retires, we're going to get down to about two workers for each retiree. And the situation is actually worse than that. Because right now, those three workers are supporting about $30,000 per capita per, per retiree. Uh, it, that's going to rise to $40,000. Now, I'm not great at math, but either even I can work out two workers, $40,000. You're dealing with a scale of debt, a scale of uh, burdens placed on young people that's really not sustainable. Now, this is not really a conceivable number. It's not a realistic number. What this number means is that in order to pay its bills, the government would have to take $205 trillion instead of spending on stuff, set it aside, and uh, basically for infinity, getting returns. Unfortunately, $205 trillion is more than we have lying around. It's more wealth than exists in the world. But let's make this a little more concrete and a little more relatable to our lives. So let's take 20% of the problem, Social Security. So right now, does anybody know what we pay each month in Social Security taxes? I thought I heard it, but you've got to be louder and braver. 12.5%. Yeah, well, 12.4%, technically. But that's good that you know. Most people don't know. And if you look at your paycheck each month, you'll have a little line item that says 6.2% of your money this month went to pay payroll taxes. And so you might be thinking, Don, even I can do math. 6.2 does not equal 12.4%. But it turns out that the government is very sly and very smart, and since the beginning has nominally split our payroll tax between the employer and the employee. But it also turns out that any economist will tell you that other half is really deducted from your paycheck. The government, your, your, your company's not giving it to you, they're just paying it to the government. So yeah, 12.4% of your income. Now for the average millennial worker, just out of college, they're making about $40,000 a year. So 12.4% of that is somewhere over the neighborhood of $5,000 a year, which is more than a car payment each month that young people are forced to give to the elderly just today before they can start doing things like paying for their car payment, paying off their college loans, paying to move out of mom and dad's place. Another way to think about it is that that's about six weeks out of the year that each of us is working without remuneration. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if Walmart had a story published in the paper where it turned out that one of their managers were uh, asking employees to you know, work a weekend without pay, 
there would be riots in the street. They say, you can't do that, you're exploiting people. Now, in that case, the employee could leave and say, I don't want to be exploited. But in Social Security, six weeks, a month and a half each year, just for one program. And to close that gap, we're getting into seven weeks, perhaps eight. And if we add in Medicare, well, I mean, heck, we're getting to a point where people are going to be spending, if we're trying to continue on this path, months and months of their lives having to set aside their hopes and dreams in order to give stuff to other people. Now, I call this the debt draft because I think in a real literal sense, it is conscripting young people into serving, to serving other people's retirement needs, other people's health care needs, and it's really going to come at the expense of the things that they want and need to achieve in order to live happy, successful lives. So I think there's a really important question of how do we get here and why? Why should we be on this path? What is a good alternative? And so I want to step back a little bit. And instead of just number crunching, I want to get a bigger picture look of what is the justification for these programs? And does the justification make any sense? So what are some of the arguments we've actually heard for why we have Social Security and Medicare? Why do we need old age welfare? People don't save. And what happens if you don't save and you reach old age and you have no money and you can't work? Well, life's pretty bad, right? Yeah, so anyone else? Yeah? People are too stupid to take care of themselves even to do the one deal. Yeah, that's exactly right. They're going to make bad decisions. So, I mean, if you put these two together, in effect, one, one kind of justification is it's, nece it's necessary for economic security. Because whether it's through bad luck, just you know, nature taking its course, or bad choices, um, a free market where there is no welfare state programs doesn't provide us the security we need to be happy and successful. Any any others? <coughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, but why does that mean we need welfare state programs? Why? No, 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 no. But why would people say that? They, they would listen to what you said and say, yeah, exactly, so we need these programs, but, right. but why? Why is that different from the fact of, um, you know, my car run, you know, eventually runs down, I have to buy a new one, or I have to, you know, make plans to save for the next car. Right. Um, and they should save for when things go bad. Yeah, but if they don't, right, it's our obligation to make sure that they're taken care of. Any other thoughts? I mean, come on, we, we, you know, we, we've all heard, what, what happens if somebody says they want to reduce Social Security handouts just a little bit? Are they praised for being so uh, financially savvy? They're scared because they don't want to, they want to be voted back into office, and they know that the elder generation will vote them out. Yeah, so the politician, it's an enormously popular program, right? Very political. Yeah, and so what we're trying to get is the root of the popularity. I mean, what I would say, can sum it up in various different ways. In part, it's we're worried about people being poor. We're worried about them not being able to take care of themselves. We, we don't want to throw grandma off the cliff to hearken to a uh, charge that was made. Yeah. There's an attitude of, well, I paid into it, so I should be able to get out of it. Well, that's, yeah. That's, which is actually a false argument. But. Well, yeah, so well, I'm going to break that, that down in a second, but I'm glad, I'm glad you named that. because that's not saved for you somewhere. 
Well, 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 I'm going to have to put the kibosh on this debate. All right. So basically what we have is two things. One, Watkins, it's not a welfare program in the first place. It's an earned benefit, right? That's what I heard you saying. I paid for it. I have a right to get something back. So don't tell me about this number. You know, that's nonsense. And then the other thing that kind of came out in one way or another was it's the right thing to do. So basically it's the idea of people pay for it and therefore they have a right to it. It's the idea that all of us face risks in life, particularly as we move into old age, and we need to make preparations for it. And so these programs are ways of preparing us for it and making sure that you know, there's a safety net there for us. And then finally, it's that there's something moral about these programs. There's something moral about having programs that take care of people in old age. And so what I want to do tonight um, for the bulk of this discussion is I want to run through these. Now, as you can probably see, I'm very happy to get interaction as we go along. And so feel free to interrupt a question or an objection if you don't think that I've said something right or you think that there's kind of pushback that should be gotten. Um, I will, as we said, try to keep it under wraps a little bit because we have a lot to get through. Um, so let's start here with the idea that it's an earned benefit. Now, let's make this a little clear. So basically, this is kind of the image that people have of Social Security. So here's young me, and I'm happy because I'm young. Here's old me, and I'm sad, and I have a cane. But I'm not that sad because the government has been putting 12.4% of my money into a trust fund that eventually I'll be able to take out of and rest comfortably in old age. Problem is, that is totally false. You suggest not true at all. Not at all how the program works. Now, the details of how it works are complicated, and we can talk about that. But the simple version is pretty simple. So here's me. Here's some other guy. And there's my money going to him. And actually, I'm sad because there goes my money. That's really all the program is. So uh, Medicare is a little bit different. Obviously, has more complexity. Um, because it's dealing with the government providing services in one form or another. But in essence, it's the same thing. What we're doing is we're taking money from young working people and we're giving it to older retirees. Now, this is not some like crazy theory that uh, I've come up with. If you check out, for instance, Social Security for Dummies, this is hardly an ideological free market book. It's just telling people how the program works so that they can um, enjoy it when they get old. And it describes the program as a, as a pipeline running from young workers to older retirees. Pipeline. That's uh, an interesting conception. Now the question is, if this is how it works, can it be an earned benefit? So, In one sense of the word, yes. Uh -huh. In another sense, no. Okay. I earned it because my money was being taken and I was under the assumption it was being put aside for me. Uh -huh. If it isn't, no. Uh -huh. I think that gets part of the, to the heart of the matter. I mean, basically, the, the theory that that's an earned benefit is kind of like saying that, you know, if Kyle Steele robs my wallet and now I don't have my wallet, I've lost my money. And so my earned benefit is to go and take Amanda's wallet. I mean, after all, I earned the money that was in there and then it got taken from me. 
Now, you might think this is a good deal, that this is something important that we need to do as a society. You might think it's necessary for economic security and that it's the right thing to do, but it can't be an earned benefit. There was an injustice committed to us, right? So, in a sense, we earned our money, and then unjustly it was taken away. And one of the great tragedies is that many uh, today's retirees are dependent on Social Security for the bulk of their income. But that's not because of the injustice of this guy wanting to keep his money. It's because he used to be this guy who was paying somebody else's bill. So, not an earned benefit. What we have is a plain old welfare program. Again, I think it's a good welfare program, but it's not an earned benefit. Indeed, you can, if you think that it's an, old, an earned benefit, you can make the same argument of every form of government welfare. The fact is that the vast majority of people who go on what we traditionally call welfare, right, uh, you know, plain old dole or handouts, they're only on there for a couple months, and then they're back on their feet. For the vast majority, that's true. Most of the time, they're taxpayers, and then sometimes they're collecting. No, the fact is that this is what exactly what a handout looks like. It looks like sometimes people are playing the role of victims, sometimes people are receiving the unearned. So then the question is, is that desirable? Do we want to have a welfare program for the elderly? Is that something that's necessary, and is that something that's right? And so let's look first at economic security uh, and whether or not necessary. So what is economic security, by the way? We kind of talked about it a little bit, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. What do we mean when we talk about economic security? Yeah, that's one way people will put it. Um, sometimes that's what the safety net is supposed to kind of evoke, right? It's the idea that what you need, we're going to guarantee it in one way or another. So it's in effect Guaranteed wealth, guaranteed income, guaranteed resources. Now, I would argue that that is not a legitimate way to think about economic security. Because there's no such thing as guaranteed wealth. I mean, what would it mean to say, we have guaranteed homes and guaranteed buildings and guaranteed educations? Well, who's guaranteeing them? Because nature doesn't give us these things automatically. The only way you can give economic security by that standard is you force some people to provide others with stuff. The, the only rational meaning of economic security is really that if you do create something, if you do create a building, if you do earn a paycheck, somebody else can't come along and steal it. The fundamental meaning of economic security is precisely that you're free to take the actions necessary to provide, and guarantee, and provide yourself with the things that you need to live and to thrive. And now that creates a little bit of a problem for the welfare state if we're trying to see it as a means to achieving economic security. Because what does the welfare state do? Well, I erased it, but nevertheless, you have good memories. Um, it takes away the stuff that people have earned. It's depriving them of economic security in a, big, in a really important sense. Indeed, how economically secure are we headed towards that kind of crisis? But you might think, okay, Watkins, well, that's a nice way to play with words, but at the end of the day, what happens if a person gets sick or gets injured or can't work anymore and needs to be able to meet his needs in old age? Now, it turns out that we don't have to really theorize about what happens because, believe it or not, Social Security does not always exist in this country. If you went to public school, you probably don't believe that. But it's true. Did anybody know when uh, Social Security was created? What year? 
1932. I heard 36. I had 32. It's actually 1935. So we're in the ballpark. That's great. Um, yeah. So that means that for longer than we had Social Security, America existed without it. And so the question is, what was happening? Because surely if the elderly were starving in the streets, as we're sometimes told, that would be at least a pretty good argument for maybe we do need it. We do need it. We, we need to really take that seriously. So did they starve in the streets? Now, this is what I cover extensively in my book. My book, the first half of it is the history of America before and after the welfare state. But I just want to talk about a little bit of what people are doing. Because believe it or not, they did not starve in the streets. One indication of this, by the way, before we get into what they were actually doing is, what was happening with immigration during this period? Surely in a land where people were starving in the streets because there was no social security, they were fleeing to countries that did have welfare states, like Germany, right? <laughs> no, I mean, this is the period of the greatest wave of immigration to America in history. Millions of people were, were, were coming here, including from places like Germany that had welfare states. Indeed, it's interesting. Social Security, as I said, gets passed in 1935. Um, progressive thinkers in America had been pushing for a welfare state in America since roughly the 1880s. That's 50 years. Now, it turns out for the first 30 years or so of that, they, don't, they, they have nothing to say about handout programs for the elderly. They, they say, look, and they say this explicitly, no, the American elderly are doing pretty well. We're concerned about the poor. But around 1900, they realized, you know, we've been spending a few decades on this, and uh, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody wants to help the poor. But everybody likes older people. We're, most of us at one time or another aspire to being one. And so they decide, all right, we're going to focus on handouts for the elderly. And that's what we get in 1935. But what had people been doing before this. Now, you have to remember a little bit of the historic context at this time. Uh, America had been going through the Industrial Revolution. And so, what argument that FDR gave for Social Security was, was look, the limited system of the Founding Fathers where you're responsible for all your own needs, that was fine before industrialization. But now, he said, life is becoming more and more insecure. Now, this was crazy because life was more and more secure than ever. People were living longer, they were earning more. That was the main retirement plan before uh, industrialization, by the way, it was die. I mean, that was basically it, is you'd work and then you die, and then hey, that's a, no retirement plan necessary. But because of industrialization, we're living longer, we have more wealth, but it did create new challenges. Namely, one of the things you would do often in old age is you would just live on the farm with your family, and then your family would take care of you and so on. And as we'll see, that still went on in the cities, but. As people were moving away from their families, there were new challenges, right? So what, what things did people do? Because it turns out Americans, they knew that they would eventually get older. And these people were so far-sighted, it's amazing. But they knew that, hey, it's coming. And they made plans for it. So any clues to some of the things they did rather than starve in the streets when they got older? Yeah. Well, if you had excess wealth, you could save it. So savings. Now, it turns out that they did, I don't think, Excess wealth is kind of a funny phrase, but they nevertheless did save between one-eighth and one-ninth of their incomes, which, given that today our savings rate is plus or minus 1%, really hovering around zero, pretty incredible. But yeah, people save because they knew that life gives you challenges and that you might not be able to work. Although, one of the things they often did do is continue to work. And this was not a 
in most cases because, oh, I'm so miserable and so poor, what else am I going to do? One of the things the left would complain about for years, even after creating Social Security, is that these people keep wanting to work. <clears throat> it turns out that people did not want to live purposeless lives where they were just sitting around for decades. A lot of people wanted to work. That's where they got a feeling of self-esteem, purpose, and so on. Um, so to the extent that people were healthy, they very often continued to work and to support themselves. Any other ideas about what was going on? There was a pretty extensive network of uh, what they call mutual aid societies and things like that uh, uh, you know, in the 19th century. Uh, Where were you five years ago when I started researching this? I, didn't, I had never heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> mutual aid. So, I mean, you explained it. Well, basically, people would pay join these social clubs that you know eventually turn into Elks lodges and Moose lodges today. If you've ever, um, my grandfather was a part of one. He was the Grand Poobah. He said, what, "What does that mean?" He goes, "I don't know, but I get free beer." <laughs> so, yeah, you pay a, a small membership fee, and that would give you contractual rights to things that were in effect primitive forms of insurance, whether it was unemployment, sickness, injury, have a lodge doctor, and. Very often, they had old-age retirement homes for members who didn't have anybody to take care of them. And, and there was a bunch of other things. People had insurance, life insurance, and even if, obviously, you can't retire on your life insurance, but you could in emergencies cash it in and so on. A lot of informal help from friends and family, um, I mentioned before. It was very common, and it continued to be common for a long time, for people to, uh, if they couldn't support themselves, move back in with their children. Um, the, and then finally there was private charity and indeed um, charity was as a percent of GDP Americans spent more on charity in, in those days than we do even today so the bottom line is that there was a bunch of ways that free people were providing real economic security for themselves they earned wealth and then they used it in ways to meet their needs and deal with life's risks. So what was the bottom line? Far from starving in the streets, again, people were flooding here, it was the land of opportunity, and now we all have great statistics from this time. Um, we actually have very, very poor statistics from this time, but the best statistics we do have suggest that no more than 8% of the elderly were dependent even in part on either private charity or the the minuscule kind of government charitable programs there were at the state and local level at the time. 92% of them were one way or another meeting their needs into old age and were living longer into old age than ever before. Now, we need to take a second. 8%, that's not a great number from today's perspective. I mean, given how wealthy we are, I would hope to see that it would be less than 1% that would be dependent on private charity. But we have to remember the context here. And the context looks more or less like this. So let's go back to say, oh, I don't know, the beginning of time, and then plot out kind of like GDP per capita. Well, basically goes like this, starting in roughly 1800. So basically we're just you know doing a little bit better than starving to death. And then roughly 1800 starts shooting up. Here's where we are today. We're talking about roughly, I don't know, somewhere right here. Economic freedom had only started to enrich us. Industrialization had only started to give us the resources to make our lives amazing. And so um, the fact that even in that era, 
even when we had far less economic resources and far less knowledge about things like insurance, investing, and so on that we do today. Still, we had a situation in which uh, only a handful of people had to turn to outside charity in order to be able to live. So that's kind of what I would leave as the bottom line for economic security. This is something that we can, and in my view, should provide uh, for ourselves and our freedom. And that what the welfare state is doing is actually creating immense economic security because it basically allows the government to say, hey, guess what? We can take as much money from you for whatever resources or for whatever purposes we regard as right, as good. And at that point, you're at the mercy of the system. So let's then turn to the final point. Although, any questions so far? Yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, given that uh, Social Security uh, came right in the middle of um, Roosevelt's Depression, um, would you say that the uh, part of the argument for that, uh, for its imposition, was the, um, the at least perceived destruction of the the, um, uh, the means of storing savings, uh, i.e. banks uh, and the, the financial system where you would put your extra capital um, for retirement? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I assume everybody got the gist of it. Basically, this is taking place during the Great Depression, and suddenly all the means of kind of saving and providing for your own life seem very unstable. Definitely, I talk a little bit in my book about what happens. There is a feeling, a sense among Americans um, since the beginning of this country that I'm in control of my destiny. Uh, where I end up is not a result fundamentally of luck or anything. It's, it's my choices, and I can deal with life's challenges. And one of the things that happens during the, during the Great Depression is that people start to get shook to the core. They start to think, maybe I'm not in control of my fate. Maybe I'm not control, in, in control of my economic you know, destiny the way that I thought I was. In which case, um, any maybe I'm seeking some sort of guarantee, uh, even though, as we've seen, there is really no such thing as a guarantee. And so I think that definitely went into it. Now, this is kind of going beyond the scope, but so I'll just assert this, and then you know we can talk about it later in the Q and A if anyone wants to follow up. The Great Depression certainly, and depressions in generally, don't result from the free market. Uh, I'm not an expert in the Great Depression itself, but I think there's strong, strong overwhelming evidence that, I mean, there was a government-created problem. And then even if you thought it was a problem, the solution, it's hard to see how the solution is. Let's just take a bunch of money from young people and give it to old people. It, 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 I mean, it's hard to make sense of that, particularly when we look at, um, if you look at how, for instance, stocks play out over time, even after, say, you know, the 2008 recession, you do better investing in those than you do relying on handouts from other people. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. So, turning then to it's the right thing to do. The, in one sense, who could argue with that, right? If what we mean by it's the right thing to do, that you don't want to see people starving in the streets. You don't want to see uh, people unable to support themselves. And there seems to be something wrong about just turning a blind eye to somebody who needs your help. Now. What I want to suggest is that the welfare state has nothing to do with whether or not you want to help somebody who's facing an emergency. That the two have nothing in common. The desire to want to help somebody, as we've seen, people were doing that all the time in America before the welfare state. All the time they were helping out others. Well, that doesn't justify a welfare state. It justifies, for instance, you helping somebody that you care about. So 
Welfare state says something different, and here's the way that I, I like to think about it. So, don't ask for a minute, would I help somebody, or do I, do I want to help somebody, or am I the kind of benevolent person who would take care of somebody in an emergency? Ask yourself instead what you would do if you found yourself in need. So, you find out, for instance, you need an operation you can't afford. Now, you have two choices. You go over to your neighbor. Here's your neighbor. And you can ask him, hey, look, I've been in some tough times, and uh, I need some help. Will you help me pay for this operation? So that's option one. Option two is that you pull out your giant gun, <laughs> and you say, give me your money. I need it. It's mine. Now, I'm exaggerating this a little bit, but in essence, these are really the two choices. You ask for people's help, or you demand it. You say that your need entitles you to help. Now, I've asked thousands of people, so I'm not going to you know, uh, insult your intelligence uh, or morality by taking a poll. But I've never met anybody who goes, yeah, I would feel entitled to you know, demand or even pull out a gun uh, and say, you owe me. Most of us, our attitude would be, I hope he'll help me, but if my neighbor turns and said, hey, I'm trying to uh, pay for my daughter's education, I'm trying to start a business, I'm trying to pay for my mortgage, I just can't do it, I have other priorities I have to attend to, our reaction would be, I understand, and hopefully I can find somebody else, uh, some other way to pay for my operation. But the point about the welfare state is that it's not about helping, it's about entitlement. It's about the idea that if you have a need that your neighbor has the capacity to fulfill, then you have a right to have it fulfilled by him. That morally, in principle at least, you would be right to go demanding his money. And if he said no, he had other priorities, he would be in the wrong. The whole essence and the whole moral uh, claim being made by the welfare state is that handouts are a right. The fact that you need them, the fact that a person might need money, that other people are in a position to give him entitled to their need is a debt on the rest of us. So the question is, is there any basis for this? What is the argument for this? One of the things to keep in mind is that we talked about what was going on before the welfare state, that people were able to flourish and to deal with life's risks through all sorts of voluntary means, including private charity. The welfare state, it's not that we just should sit back and compare them and go, which one is the most efficient way to help people? Because what was striking about America before the welfare state was that people were supporting themselves and helping others where nobody was being forced to sacrifice for anyone else. You could help the people you cared about with, in ways that you could afford. The welfare state says it's irrelevant what you care about them. You might even think they're immoral creeps who made themselves needy through their own bad choices. But you have an obligation. And it's irrelevant whether you can afford it. You don't get to decide what you can afford. We get to decide what you, quote, can afford. And we don't really care what the issue is, is their need. So we're dealing with a radically different moral scenario. Yeah? So an argument is uh, often advanced that what about that one guy who really has nobody? Uh, give me a scenario like that. I know. So you're saying that they don't really, not, nothing like this really exists. Well. What I am saying is this. So first of all, it's kind of a weird argument. Hey, 
there's going to be three or four people who slip through the cracks. So let's create an enormous trillion dollar a year system that all of us are going to be forced to pay for and all of us are going to be dependent on and that aren't just going to provide a minimum living, but we'll try to make it possible for us to live totally on without any form of any other income. So it's kind of a weird you know, argument. I can think of more efficient ways to help four people than three people or one person. Um, and I don't think it's because I'm particularly intelligent. It's not that kind of a problem. But the second one is, you know, concretize it for a second. So what would you have to do in order to end up where nobody's going to help you? So first of all, you'd have to have no ability to support yourself, no savings, no insurance, no friends, no family, no neighbors, no co-workers, no private charity willing to help you much of a jerk. <laughs> I mean, now, does it mean that there could not be a case of that happens? Certainly not. And I mean, the same thing is true of a welfare state. Do we think there aren't people who, in effect, slip through the cracks one way or another? Indeed, not everybody's even eligible for Social Security because you actually have to have earnings over a certain period of time. So it doesn't even solve that problem, which is one of the things the left often complains about. So um, the, the, that's, in effect, cover-up for what's really going on. What's really going on is not, hey, we're worried that somebody will slip through the cracks. It's the idea that what we think is, it's irrelevant whether you earn something. What's morally relevant is what a person needs, and we need to sacrifice for those in need. And another way to put this is the right thing to do, because your role is not to pursue your own happiness, but to be your brother's keeper, to be a servant. And this ties back then to what I was saying about the debt draft and why I call it a draft. I am, um, anybody know the comedian Russell Brand? You ever hear of him? Um, married to Katy Perry, if that helped. Probably, if you don't know Russell Brand. Anyway, um, so I was supposed to be at a show a couple of years ago to debate selfishness, and uh, it never came together, but um, on the, we did kind of a practice run where we went into a comedy club and like did this debate live on stage. And uh, just as an aside, if you're ever gonna come and defend selfishness, and want to get the crowd on your side, bring your pregnant wife and stick her in the front row. Uh, people go far gentler on you for some reason. So anyway, we go there, but afterwards I'm talking to Russell, and I'm talking about this whole problem, right? And I said, look, this is turning kids into servants. And he said about the welfare state, isn't that the point? And he's right. The whole perspective of the welfare state is that you should be a servant. And so the fact is that the fact that you know this debt is going to lead young people to have to give up a lot of their hopes and dreams in order to serve others is not a problem. It's exactly what should be happening. And they might quibble about the details, but morally in principle, yes, we should be drafting the debt because under the welfare state's view of the individual, you're one of two things. You're either a burden or a resource. You're a burden when you're in need. You're a resource when you're in a position to take care of all those burdens. Now, I think that far from being a moral view of human beings and human existence, I regard that as an incredibly uh, immoral view. The view that we're just basically a whole bunch of resources to be exploited or a whole bunch of exploiters, that is certainly not the view of the individual the founding fathers held. Definitely not the view that you get of the individual that you get reading Ayn Rand's books. And it's certainly not the view that I think we should aspire to in our own lives. The whole essence of America before the welfare state 
the ideal was that each of us is independent to live our own lives. And then we dealt with one another in voluntary, win-win, cooperative ways. And if we couldn't, we were free to go our own way. We weren't all caught in a collective web of being sacrificed and sacrificing for others. So, I have some more summing up points, but any other questions at this point so far before we go on? What do you say to Russell Brand when he gives you something that is so naked and evil like that? He's like, yes. What, what do you say to him like that? What's his response? Uh, well, I mean, my response was utter speechlessness. Uh, not because I was shocked. I mean, he's, I mean, this guy said way more awful things. Um, but what I was shocked was just how revealing it was of what was going on and how everybody accepts that, yeah, that's a moral way to constitute society. Um, the, there's two ways to think about the response. If, if you think the person's open to it, they just don't realize the implications, then you can point out the implication. And that's what I'm trying to do, is say that if your view is, well, yeah, people should be servants, what you're doing is you're treating them as burdens and resources rather than independent beings who have the right to pursue happiness. Uh, and there's much to say about why one view is right and one is wrong, and that's the whole essence of, say, Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead and Alan Shrugged. Um, but in most cases, if a person really holds that view and certainly holds it that explicitly, you can't, there's no convincing them. It's not like Russell's gonna go, oh, I didn't realize that we should be dedicated to the pursuit of our own happiness and not sacrifice ourselves to others or others to ourselves. Man, I should really pick up on Alan Shrugged. Uh, there's no scenario like that. Um, but in, 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 if I was going to let's say there was the crowd in front of us at that point, which there wasn't, my response would simply be, you don't have a right to exploit me. I am not a resource for you to exploit. In fact, you just make a moral assertion, an assertion of self-esteem, that you have a right to live for your own sake. And there's no real way of standing up against that on their part. So, I want to, yeah. They may not have a right to stand up against it, but they do because it's the government. Oh, well, they'll enforce, the government will enforce it. But my, point is, but my point is that if you're dealing, in, in these kinds of scenarios, what you're trying to do is sweep the rug out from under the people arguing for a certain moral perspective and say, look, you're claiming that you guys are the harbingers and bearers of, uh, of compassion and that I'm a cruel person who doesn't care about anybody else. But it's really the exact reverse is that they have no compassion for the individual, no respect for the individual, and no respect for the individual's right to live for, to live a life and achieve happiness, and that it's only the person who respects the individual's freedom who can claim things like compassion and respect for the individual. Uh, that doesn't change government over, overnight, and we can talk about how to do that, although if you know how to do it overnight, you should be up here giving the talk, because I sure do. All right, the, the bigger picture to bring this all together now is I think underlying this whole debate about the welfare state is something I call the Garden of Eden premise. And that's the idea that, um, oh, before I go to that, uh, I forgot to make a point about the bigger picture damage done by Social Security. So I've talked about some of the reasons why I think it's not necessary and immoral, but I want to get at the deeper destructiveness of it. It's not just that it takes money away from us. That's only one aspect of the bigger problem. The bigger problem is 
So let's say that Social Security actually did not work by just taking money from one person. Let's say it really did work by the government had this nice trust fund where it put in 12.4%. So let's say it really was uh, you when you're young, money saved and invested, say like in a 401k that you owned, and then you got it back when you were old. I would argue that that in principle is no better. It may be less damaging, but in principle is no better. Let me get into it quickly why I think that's so. The, uh, well here's one way to do it. My dad and I have very different goals for old age. So, you know, he's basically spent the last decade or two running two tech companies simultaneously. Exhausted, would love to have a couple decades to, you know, just play golf and travel the world with my mom. Um, I, on the other hand, want to work as long as I can. Now, we, given those two different goals, we would take very different approaches to planning for old age. He would save a lot more. I would save a lot less. I, I would have you know, enough to deal with, say, an emergency where I couldn't do that. Um, we would also probably start our horizons at different times. I might wait until I'm in my later 30s and earning more and then use my resources when I'm young to do things that I could only do when I'm young, whether it's start a family or say, you know, go on certain kinds of vacations or whatnot. Um, the bottom line is what this would do, 12.4% is set aside from hell or high water. The government is taking away the freedom to make those kinds of assessments on our own. It's interfering with our freedom to plan our own lives. And so is it less damaging that yeah, I lose out when I'm young, but get something back when I'm old. Perhaps it's less damaging, but it's still part of the same damage. It's taking away my ability to make the best decisions for my life and allowing the government to say, no, we have a trump card. Whenever we think we know better, whenever we think that we know what's best for your life or that we think you should be serving society rather than being concerned with what's best for your life, we get to interfere. When that becomes the approach, we lose. And when I say we lose, it means those of us who are willing to take responsibility for our lives lose. Those of us who are willing to exercise the thought and effort life requires lose out. And that gets into the, the bigger picture of what's going on in this debate, which I was starting to get to before. So the Garden of Eden premise. This really comes from the idea that, you know, life shouldn't require us to be responsible to make good decisions, to exert all this effort. It should just guarantee us all the things we want, like the Garden of Eden. It should drop into our laps. And you know what? Reality it is being so stubborn, not giving us what we need automatically and without effort. So what we're going to do, we're going to create a society that basically tries to make it as much like a Garden of Eden as possible. Now how? Well, since it doesn't give us the resources that we need in life, we're just going to take them from those who have them and give them to those who don't. Now, in principle, that sounds pretty unfair, right? We're just going to take stuff from people who earned it through their thought and effort and give it to those who did it. That seems hard to justify. So what we're going to do is we're going to come up with a bunch of arguments to justify it. So, for instance, you didn't actually earn your money in, in the first place. You didn't build that, society gave it to you, your success is a matter of luck. We're not taking what you earned, we're taking what you were lucky enough to happen upon, because some other people weren't lucky enough to happen upon. And then, by the way, 
Justice isn't about giving you what you earn anyway. Justice is about social justice. It's about giving you what you need, whether or not you earned it. And that's the whole, it's the right thing to do argument. All of the arguments are really trying to justify and this whole Garden of Eden way of constructing a society. But the fact is, we don't live in a Garden of Eden. We live in something much better. We live in a glorious earth where you can have all the things that you want, but you have to pay the price. You have to exert the thought, effort, decision-making, and create the political freedom to protect your ability to do that in a successful way. And so my view ultimately of the debt draft is that the only moral solution is to abolish it, to stop treating people as burdens and resources, to stop uh, conscripting them into service, liberate each of us so that we can make those decisions and make the most of our own lives. And I think if we did that, far from worrying about disaster, we would be dealing with the greatest amount of prosperity and happiness possible for human beings. So with that, thank you, and I'm going to take questions until they shut us down. Some of the time we were, but 
often, more often than not, a lot of what this talk was about was just giving the facts about Social Security that were never told. Since the beginning, since they started pushing for Social Security, they start, the government presented it as something radically different than it really was. So that 6.2% of your paycheck, why aren't they telling you the full cost openly? Because they, they feel they have to hide it in order to gain support. A trust fund. We didn't go into how the trust fund works, and if we want to talk about it, we can. The trust fund doesn't have any economic resources that can be used to pay the bill. So why would you determine a trust fund and pretend that, yes, it does have resources, unless you thought that people wouldn't support it if it really worked the way that they knew how it really worked? Um, Social Security, the official name for it, it's insurance. And we don't pay taxes. Did you know we don't actually pay Social Security taxes? FICO, what is this? Did anyone know what FICA stands for? It was just the official name for a payroll tax? You all, how about the C? Just the C. It's contributions. We, we pay contributions to Social Security. Now, here, uh, Dave mentioned that we're happy to take your contributions. And uh, the sad news, sad news is that if you don't give our, uh, us our contributions, we're going to treat you the same way that Social Security will. If you don't pay them their contributions. No, they have to totally misrepresent what the system is in order to get support. And so part of my view is that if we, first of all, just get out the basic facts of what it is, and then are able to mount real morally confident opposition to it, I think there's hope. Do I think there's any guarantee? No, I, mean, I think it's a hard, hard fight. But at the end of the day, you know, I have a, a year and a half child, and I can't, I, I'm not going to let her grow into the world where that's what she faces without trying to do something about it. So I don't spend too much time thinking about whether or not our chances are good or bad. All I think about is there's a problem and you can change it. I mean, think about it. We've, we've actually changed people's thinking at a much deeper level in a very fast amount of time historically. Um, take Americans' view of slavery. Um, in 1830, where you start getting the abolitionist movement, only 5% of Americans believe in abolition. By the time you get slavery, uh, slavery abolished, support for it is really the majority uh, of Americans, or certainly in the North. That radical a change, fundamental a change in people's thinking, is possible if you have better arguments than they've ever heard before. And so that's really the difficulty. The difficulty is fundamentally bringing clarity on how to think about this whole issue. And if people have that clarity, then there's not then you have a real chance of rolling back this kind of system. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, first you and then you and then I completely agree with what you're saying. That it's more of an issue of being like the top or the being misrepresented. I find that some people our age that I talk to, they just see the tax and they're like, it's just another tax. Like, I'm still saving in my 401k. I'm still sick, you know, doing other things to for my life, and they just see it as another tax, like why even fight that? Like, if they're okay. going to tax us, if, if we taught them on that, and, and we got them to stop taxing us the six point whatever percent it is, they're just going to take that tax some other, some other way, or something else, because they want the money. Yeah, well, I would, there's, there's a couple things to say about that. So first of all, it's true that people don't really react when you say, oh, you have a high tax or something. We don't like high taxes. But then we like all of the things that they're going for, which is why we get high taxes. So you, if you ask people, do you think taxes should be higher or lower? Oh, definitely lower. All right, would you cut? And then they'll just go down the list and ask every possible pro you can think of and say, no, I wouldn't cut 
that I would put that, yeah, add these three things on that I like. So what really has to go on is the discussion shouldn't be and can't be focused on the tax side of it. It's important, I'll come back to what is important to say about taxes. It's focused on the goals of the programs. And are those legitimate goals? Are those goals that we support or not? And so the key thing to get them to see is that the whole goal of the program is immoral. And it's only in that context then that you can see how corrupt it is that we're paid, paying so much of our lives in order to support a program that's immoral. So yeah, if they thought that, I mean, if you, for instance, um, take uh, you know the military defense or the police force or something like that, these are things that we need. And so if you said to somebody that, oh my gosh, you pay a lot for the military, uh, you pay a lot for the police force, the, that is not, some people won't like it, but most people will think, pay for the government to do. Maybe it's a little wasteful or something like that, but it's not going to become a moral crusade for them. So it's about challenging the goals of the program, not fundamentally the expense. But the expense is not unimportant. It's just an issue that has to be made real to people. It is not easy. I tried to do it very briefly by not just putting it in terms of a percentage or even a number, but of the time that you're, of your life that is taken from you, or the particular concrete goals that you want to achieve that you can't achieve. And so when I discuss this with students, for instance, that's really hard because they don't, they're not used to having any money. For them, money does grow on trees, trees being the name of mom and dad. And so you have to do a lot more work to get them to see that what this really means is what you want out of life. Well, some of it you won't get, and as we go into the future, more and more of it you won't get. But uh, that's a hard challenge because one of the protections that the welfare state has is fundamentally that it's taking money. And money is fungible, right? So it's not like, I mean, a more honest version of the welfare state would be the government rolls up in your yawn, lawn and dumps somebody else's grandma off and says, here, you watch her for six weeks. <laughs> it's the same thing. I mean, your money is your time. Your money is the time that you would devote to the things that you want to do in your life. Um, but because it's just dollars taking away, it doesn't sting as much. And then they hide the dollars. I actually think we should have a truth in advertising campaign for Social Security. And one of the things we should push for is, hey, look, you can, if you want to tax us at 12.4%, that's fine. But A, you have to acknowledge that it's 12.4%. And guess what? You don't get to silently, secretly take it out of our paycheck to where it doesn't hurt. At the end of the year, we should have to write a gargantuan $5,000 check. We'll see how much. We'll see. That doesn't erase support, but it would make people stop and think, hmm, does this really make sense? Uh, but, yeah, that, it's... That's why I think most people who comment on Social Security, or it's one reason why, I think they're completely ineffective. They're completely ineffective because if you just start telling people numbers without any context or meaning or challenging the goals, you're not going to have any impact. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah one, one of the terms that you haven't used so far uh, this evening is a Ponzi scheme, and I think that's a buzzword that everybody recognizes and is particularly effective. <laughs> Um, in young people, I mean, the deck, the, what you're doing with the debt graph is, is unbelievable. But, you know, either we destroy the welfare state as it exists today, or it's going to continue to destroy us. And it's an opportune time to do that. Obamacare, you can joke this to Obamacare, which people recognize as n having nothing to do with health care, as having everything to do with control and power over the American people. And that's exactly what Social Security says. It's a Trojan war. One of, one of the, the practical realities is it is a Ponzi scheme, it is 
bankrupt, Medicare is bankrupt, Social Security is bankrupt. What, what can we as, I mean, I am more than willing, and you mentioned in your book that people shouldn't, they don't have to morally renounce their claims of their benefits, right? right? But I want to do that. I want to renounce any claim to Social Security, whatever I've invested in Social Security, in exchange for the privatization of the program and the future liberty that that would represent for the American people and my descendants, you know, my future, you know, the future of my family, the future of my country. And I think I, I'd like to see somebody announce that grassroots movement. Here is where you can sign. Yes. Sign on to renounce your claim, but there has to be an exchange for liberty. So um, there's really two things that I'll comment on there. The first is the Ponzi scheme thing. Now, I didn't use that buzzword, as you call it, for a very deliberate reason. There's definitely a similarity between Social Security and a Ponzi scheme, but it's not, I, I don't think it's particularly illuminating to call it a Ponzi scheme. And indeed, I actually find it's not convincing. It's the reaction that you get when you call Social Security a Ponzi scheme is kind of the reaction that people got when conservatives labeled Obamacare uh, socialism. Now, it, that, there's actually a better case for calling it Obamacare socialism than Social Security Ponzi scheme. But what you do is it turns people off. It doesn't engage their thinking. When you use a label, what you're trying to get them to do, you're trying to add clarity to people's understanding of something. And what when you just get a label like that, Socialism, that people don't even know what socialism is, let alone what Obamacare is, it doesn't clarify it. What it does is it becomes a rallying cry for people who already agree with you, and it, people who don't already agree with you turn turn off because they don't regard you as being serious. And there's a similar thing that goes on with the Ponzi scheme. Now, is there a similarity between Social Security and Ponzi scheme? Yeah, and guess what? Social Security's defenders used to say this. Um, in, in the 1950s, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, the, one of the most famous economists at the time, uh, called Social Security the greatest Ponzi scheme ever conceived. Because guess what? We can, we can by transferring resources between generations, where each generation has more people earning more than their, their parents and grandparents did, we can give the parents and grandparents more income than they could have ever earned on a free market. That was the claim. Now, it turns out that there's a truth to that, but only so long as the economy keeps growing at a certain pace, and you don't, say, have a baby boom generation that has uh, kids who have fewer kids. So that's why we're running into problems. But why isn't it a Ponzi scheme? Well, Ponzi scheme, the essence of it, what makes it a Ponzi scheme, and why you have this unique concept for it, is that it's, it, it is inherently unsustainable because it's claiming there are these resources there that have already been spent. So it's just kind of moving around money until it ultimately has to collapse. But there's no inherent, nothing inherent about the welfare state that says it has to collapse because the government can do two things that uh, a, a schemer can't do. One is he can, it can just take more money from people. And two, it can just renounce some of the promises and commitments it's made. If Bernie Madoff could have said, hey, guess what? I'm not actually going to give you uh, what I promised you. And by the way, I'm going to make you give me more money. He, might, he could have gone to jail, but it, uh, his scheme wouldn't have had to collapse. And so there is an essential difference. And there's an even deeper difference that I think is important, which is a Ponzi scheme focuses on the mechanics of Social Security rather than its moral essence. And what I think you need to challenge is its moral essence. It's 
the idea it's because what's the implication is well if we could make it sustainable it would be good and so the left comes with a study that says hey we can make it sustainable by raising taxes a little bit uh, extending people's retirement into the future a few years and so on you have to get away from the idea that it's unsustainable to the idea that it's something that should not be sustained but then your to your second question I think yes what you need and one of the things that has to happen in order uh, for us to move in a better direction is that people have to be willing to say look what I'm interested in more is the freedom to live my life not to get these handouts which seem good for me in the short term but are actually devastating for me and my kids and grandkids in the long run. Um, one of the things I suggest in my book, and I mean this seriously, is people like any of you in this room who agree with me should form organizations, I would tentatively call it social security recipients against social security. Because what you need is you need to give people moral cover to oppose the program and by and by, if the people who are uh, supposedly going to be the victims of getting rid of Social Security step up and say, no, we think this is bad, even though we are the ones benefiting from it, that starts to create the moral cover for other people to criticize the program, particularly politicians. So that, I think, is definitely a grassroots thing that needs to happen in the next five or certainly ten years if we're going to get anywhere. Um, so if somebody wants to do that, that's awesome. Unfortunately, I don't qualify. Back to Russell Brand. Did the two of you happen to dis discuss Ayn Rand? If he was familiar with her work at all? Uh, well, he certainly did not seem to be. Um, but no, when I got to chat a couple minutes after it and during the debate, um, he was more interested. So I had another opponent on stage who managed to do something that was the most amazing thing I had ever seen done, which was come on taking the most conventional position in Earth that selfishness is bad. And managed to alienate the often the total audience within 30 seconds by attacking me for being a white male. Uh, she was a, a non-white lesbian, and by making it a racial issue from the beginning, turned the audience off. And then Russell found during the rest of the debate, I wasn't that interesting. As it turned out, my views didn't sound crazy when I stated them. So he spent the rest of time with the, the uh, lesbian Marxist apologist for um, you know uh, communist massacres. And teasing her about how much, how cute he thought she was, and so on. And it was, it was quite a sight. I have never been in a program quite like that. Um, yes. So uh, if I collect social security, it's taken from somebody else. It's money that I didn't earn. How can it be moral for me to take it? Well, the it's moral. Un well, so the context here is precisely that. This is not a program that we join voluntarily. We're forced into it. And Ayn Rand's view, and I agree with this, I think it's it, it, uh, a really um, profound understanding of how to think about complex moral issues, is that you have the right to accept it so long as you regard it, A, as compensation for injustices committed against you, um, and B, more importantly than that, you fight for and advocate for abolishing it, and are willing, are, are unwilling, rather, to, uh, you're willing to forego those at the second you have any chance for freedom. But uh, as far as compensation, it's, I'm accepting compensation for some, from somebody who 
them doing anything wrong. And as far as fighting for fighting for abolition of it, I'm much less. I'm <coughs> I'm shooting myself in the foot in that fight by by being a hypocrite. But you're not a hypocrite because the whole thing is you're only a hypocrite if you say that people should accept it. But the view is see this is you have to make a distinction between the way individuals react uh, or interact and then our relationship to the government. So the wallet example makes it a little bit tricky, right? Where I said you steal one person's wallet, you steal another. Yeah, the, there's no justification for that. And fundamentally, that's what's going on with social security. But as an individual citizen, there's no particular person's wallet that you're taking from. The government is the taker right here. And what you need to be doing is saying, no, you shouldn't be engaged in that taking. That is completely wrong and completely immoral. But you as an individual citizen can't be called upon to rectify the injustices of the system. What you have to advocate is that the system be just and fight for it to be just. But you can't go around trying to assess, hmm, did I indirectly benefit from the subsidy or did I get this kind of paycheck and who was the person was it taken from this kid? And there's no way to do that. And if you just tell the government, I don't want the money, it's not like they're going to give it back to anybody else. Rather, it's just going to go to pay for more unjust things in the, in the beginning. And so the question is, morally, does it make sense that the only people who should not be able to get any of their money back in effect are the people who are moral enough to recognize that the system is corrupt? No, you're only compounding the injustice. It's the, your moral obligation as an individual with respect to an immoral system is to fight for a moral system, not to just renounce it. Now, these, there are tricky cases about the, um, how to interact with various other sorts of programs or infringements on rights. Uh, and it's the, I would say the, what I recommend is in um, The Voice of Reason, Iron has an essay called the que A Question of Scholarships, where she talks about just this point and how to think about it. Uh, she'll certainly make a more convincing case than I could right here. Um, and you might disagree, but what I would suggest at least is it doesn't follow that because one opposes a program that therefore you need to renounce the, the handouts. Under certain, certain circumstances, you should, um, but I don't think Social Security falls in the same category. Yeah? You know, one of the reasons that it's hard to reason is that almost everybody that has been working 45, 50, 55, 60 years and they've been taking the Social Security out thinks that the problem with the program is mismanagement of the funds. If they had done anything proper, there would have been plenty of money and there would have been a built, an increase, uh, and they would be much better off. So that's the understanding of all the old folks, for sure, because they know they were taking that money out all the time. Well, but here's the and problem. It may not so be enough, but I'm just talking about their reality. No, I understand, and it raises important points. I didn't need to comment on the trust fund, but I think it's important. So there's one view that Social Security just mismanaged. They didn't set aside the money like they should have, and therefore we're all, you know, we, now we have this problem. But that's not actually really true. So there, um, initially before 1983, the trust fund, as it were, were just kind of this little small imbalance that sometimes the government take in a little bit more in taxes than it paid out in handouts and sometimes uh, take a little bit less. And so you have this small trust fund in order to even out, you know, matching taxes and handouts over time. But in 1983, now that the system is starting to go broke, 
um, uh, a, a great president steps in and saves Social Security, and that president was that great free marketer, Ronald Reagan. And so what they decide to do is, in the trust fund, is they say, all right, we're going to collect way more in taxes than we pay out in handouts for about 20 or years or so, or 30 years, and then we'll use those taxes to pay for Social Security, to pay down the trust fund. So this is, in effect, the idea of, we're really going to save up now. We're really going to save up. Now, one of two things can happen if you take in more money. So let's get clear on what would a genuine trust fund be. So um, let's say you're saving for your kid's education. A, a trust fund would be I earn money, I set it aside and say a little jar, and then when my kid's ready to go to college, they'll take money out of the jar. It's a trust fund. Now, that's what we, as we talked about, not what Social Security does, right? They didn't take that money, set it aside, invest it productively, and so on. Um, what they did instead is, as it started taking in more money than it was spending, in went dollars into the trust fund, but the dollars went out into the hands of the Treasury. And the Treasury used that money to spend on a bunch of other government programs, uh, you know, whether it's defense or the, you know, <coughs> subsidies and all the various things the government spends money on. And in return, it put in little IOUs known as government bonds. So this is like saving for your kid's education, putting money in the jar, and then saying, I want to go to Hawaii. If you want to go to Hawaii, let's take the money out. But don't worry, we'll put in little slips of paper that say IOUs, so we're covered. And then it comes time for the kid to go to college and says, hey, dad, where's my trust fund? He goes, here, it's filled with all kinds of IOUs. Those IOUs aren't going to help her pay for her college, you know, for, for her college at all. And that's, in effect, where we are with Social Security, is there is a trust fund, but there's no resources in there. And so some people would say, look, you've just mismanaged it. Why didn't you set aside that money? Well, it turns out that this very question was debated between 1935, after Social Security was passed, and 1939, when the government structured financial setup of the system. And they, FDR wanted a funded system. He wanted this big trust fund, but not filled with worthless IOUs. But the problem was, there was no sensible way to make it work. Now, why not? So what could the government do other than spend the money today and have a bunch of bonds that will later get cashed in through higher taxes? Well, it could just pile money under a mattress, right? But A, everybody realized politicians are not going to sit on a trillion dollars and not spend it. So that's unrealistic. But more importantly, it would be economically damaging. Just, it, just sucking a whole bunch of cash out of the economy is not good for economic development. So the other thing it could do is it could invest in the private economy, in real productive assets, right? Like put the money in the stock market. Now, set aside the volatility of the stock market, that would make the government the biggest owner of American companies in the world. And as people pointed out, that sounds suspiciously like socialism. And so there was no good way to fund it. The, the, the most sensible option was, let's just, in effect, shovel money from one generation to the next directly, and hopefully we'll be able to do it later. So what people have to, part of what they need to understand is there's no good way to finance a welfare state. 
there's no sensible way for the government to do this. It's either going to have to control the economy, it's going to have to wreck the economy, uh, or it's going to have to have a bunch of worthless IOUs that instead of calling it a trust fund, what we should really call it is what it is, a future tax obligations fund. So um, that's the short version of, I agree they have that view, but they need to understand that it's not that we make the wrong decision, it's that there is no right decision in this case. Yes? So it was passed in 1935, and then the first person to start getting in else gets it in 1940. Um, and Ayame Fuller is known, of course, she's very famous for having paid about $26 in taxes and then receiving over the course of her life more than $26,000 in handouts. So pretty good return for her. Um, for the rest of us uh, in this room, certainly, uh, many of us not so much. Uh, I mean, for my generation, my daughter's generation, set aside the, the pending disaster, for every dollar that we pay, we're going to be getting less than a dollar back. So that's our economic security right there. Um, we have about... Well, go ahead. That's kind of an argument I've tried to use on people is that is just like, you know, I'm 53, and, you know, I'm quite a ways away from collecting on this Put it into a blender and get a better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I mean, so let me ask you. Let me ask you. Break even on this. But yeah. let me ask you. Would it? Would it? Do people find that particularly compelling? Well, or what's the response? Engineers may. You're right. Not not a lot of. That's it's not a bad point to make, but yeah. I'm asking more. No, you're right. I mean, uh, those people were sort of. Yeah, and, and my view is the reason why goes to the, the, the real root of the support for it is, I would say, two things. One is fear, partly fear of independence. Why? When I have to be responsible for making these sorts of judgment, which Americans largely didn't used to have. Uh, we go back pre-1935. And then the other thing, and I think ultimately is they're linked, is the whole morality view. It's the whole view of what kind of society does it not, you know, guarantee people income? And I mean, the answer to that is a moral society, uh, because what, it, what only quote guaranteeing an income is guaranteeing a victim. Yeah, that was kind of the point of the question. Was kind of what I was trying to make earlier was that when I do make that point to, to my generation, they see that they're like, I don't expect to get any money out of this. Mm -hmm. I understand I'm going to lose money in this. System, but they just build their hands and say, what are you going to do? The government taxes us so much anyway. They're just going to, and like you kind of said with the government sitting on trillions of dollars, politicians are going to spend it. So they're used to spending it. If you end the Social Security program, I just feel like they're going to take those taxes somewhere else and continue to spend at the same levels. Well, that's why you like can't spend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't talk about any of these issues. So part of it is, my view is not get rid of Social Security and leave everything else right. in place. Part of the view, and Part of what you're doing by bringing out the underlying moral issue 
is that there's a whole alternative way of structuring a political system, one that recognizes the right of the individual to pursue his own happiness, which involves liberating us from a lot of the ways in which government interferes with that. But so I don't think that, you, although I think this is an important problem that deserves focus, I don't think in the end that you, there, there's, put it this way, there's no scenario where we convince everybody just to get rid of Social Security or just to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. It's all going to come from a, a larger change in the way that they think about things. But that doesn't mean that you, part of how people get a large scale change is that on issue after issue after issue, they start to see that, oh, guess what? There, there's an alternative word that takes the individual's right to exist seriously and, and looks very different from what we're doing today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that objection is one I would love to get because I would love to give them a list of 400 things the government should also Sorry, stop doing. Uh, and, um, yeah. Last question, Don. Oh, the last question? Really? I thought we had the five minutes. Go ahead. Kind of to that end, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, and I certainly think the founders didn't say you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness 87.6% of the time. But my question is, is, I think you have to have some sort of a coherent plan that gradually gets rid of this, sort of like your abolition example. The abolition of slavery took 40 years. And then it took another 30 years to really have it socially integrated, if you will. Is there, or, or is there anybody with a plan that says, hey, you know, we're going to create a sinking fund to retire Social Security obligations from seniors who really need it? Because they, they did, there, this was sold to them as a compact between generations. So is there anybody with a plan that says, hey, we're going to gradually abolish Social Security while not you know, removing the safety net for the seniors that this was promised to. There, there, there's a few economists who have come up with plans. I don't think any of them are particularly stellar, but on the other hand, I don't think it's a particularly hard problem. I think you can ratchet it down in various sorts of ways. I think what needs to be argued is that this is the debate we should be having. The problem today is simply, it's not, oh, you don't have a plan. It's because they don't want what the plan is trying to achieve. So. Uh, I, I talk a little bit about ways out of it in my book, but uh, the bigger thing, the bigger way out of it is get people to see that we should be getting out of it. And then it's not the hardest. There are hard problems in terms of getting out of a unfree market, but this is not really one of them. Um, I'm going to take one more because I made that really, really swift. Good job. <laughs> yes. You know, I think it's all about greed, also selfishness. There's a few things. Number one. Well, we don't have time for a few things. Give me, give me your two-sentence question. I don't have a question, I have a statement. Oh, then uh, well, I'll come up and talk to me afterwards. Yeah, uh, anybody. All right, well, and that was the last question after all. Thank you. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 